every week I get to talk over you guys. That's a good thing. I've been in a lot of churches before where it's just kind of quiet because it's kind of dead. So I appreciate that you guys are here and you're talking to each other, getting to know each other. Uh, we're going to come now to God's Word. We're going to move into a time uh, of preaching from God's Word. This is a focal point for us when we gather every week. And you may have noticed if you come on a weekly basis, I'm using a different microphone today. That's because I'm not preaching. So uh, that's hopefully good news. I don't know. We'll see. You don't have to tell me. It might hurt my feelings. But uh, this morning we have a guest with us all the way from my hometown in East Texas, Longview, Texas, where I grew up. Uh, a church called Moberly Baptist. If you've been at True North since the beginning, the earliest days, you may recognize the name Moberly because Moberly helped plant this church 13 years ago. And so our relationship has stayed strong with that church. Uh, the, our guest preacher this morning is in town to help uh, all of Alaska Baptist churches. We're gonna be gathering this next week for a pastor's conference and Andrew, who's here to preach this morning, is gonna be speaking to uh, our pastors gathered together up in the valley for a couple days and, and God willing, encouraging them and pouring into them because uh, this can be a challenging place to be a, to be a pastor, can be a little bit lonely. Uh, I want to talk to you about who Andrew is, and then I'm going to invite him up, and maybe you guys can clap for him like you did Nate and make him feel welcome as well. Um, Andrew Bear and his wife Amy are here. Uh, they currently serve uh, in the capacity of lead pastor at Moberly Baptist Church in Longview, Texas. Prior to that, you guys were in Amarillo, I believe. Uh, Andrew has both a master's and a doctorate, so you guys are finally going to hear some qualified preaching for once, huh? How about that? Um, you're going to really enjoy him. Amy and Andrew were with us last night for our Saturday evening service, and uh, he's going to bring a word from Romans chapter 5 uh, this morning and very much encourage those of us who are believers and have been for a long time and challenge those of us who maybe have not quite made our minds up about Jesus Christ. So I'll let Andrew share the rest about himself on his own. Come on up and join me, brother. You guys clap and welcome Andrew Bear. Good morning. It's good to see all of you. It's uh, wonderful to be here uh, all the way from Texas. Uh, we have something in common in that Texans brag about how large our state is. You know, everything is bigger in Texas. We pride ourselves on being the biggest at everything. But, you know, you like dwarf Texas. I think Texas can fit inside Alaska, I think, three times. Is that right? Something like that? So, uh, so you know, I can no longer brag when I go back home, but uh, it's great to be with you. And I bring you uh, greetings from Moberly Baptist Church in Longview. It is true that our church helped uh, start True North 13 years ago. And so there are many people in Longview who have been here over the years for different mission trips and, and to help out with different things. And we pray for you. I want you to know that. In fact, we prayed for you in a worship service just a few weeks ago. And uh, when, when we, anytime we share about True North, uh, there's always, there's clapping, uh, Philip, at Moberly about what God is doing here. And uh, very much we just feel a, like we have a part in what the Lord is doing in this place. And so it's great to be here. I am a millennial, okay? So it, uh, if you don't know this, if, if uh, millennials do anything, we have to take a selfie, if, if you don't take a selfie, it didn't happen, right? So here's what I want to do. I want to take a selfie with you because I want to show it back home, and I know everybody at Moberly is going to love seeing your smiling faces, okay? So can we do that? Would that be all right? All right, all right. You ready? Let's see if we can get everybody in the picture. All right, you in the back. We can't really. My arm's not long enough. All right, you ready? One, two, three. Jeez. Okay, awesome. Well done, guys. Good. Excellent. I really do feel at home uh, here. Uh, Travis, I met before the service, uh, before he was here uh, in Anchorage. He lived in uh, Houston, uh, two minutes from the house where I grew up. And so it's a very small world. And then on Friday night, um, there was a lady who 
Uh, I pastored in our church in Amarillo, Texas, and she texted Amy and said, hey, uh, just pay attention. If you happen to meet anybody from Muldoon Road Baptist Church, that's where I grew up, going to church. And we happened to be here on Friday night, and Amy was here. She's also millennial, so she took a selfie with the True North building. She's like, this Muldoon Road Baptist Church? So just a small world, and then we were able to have lunch uh, yesterday, a young couple that we discipled in our church in Amarillo. He's now in the Air Force stationed here in Anchorage, so it really does feel like, uh, like coming home, and uh, it, it's great to be with you uh, this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to take it and open uh, to the book of Romans, and we're going to spend a few moments together in Romans uh, chapter 5, and I just want, I have a, a simple goal uh, this morning, and that is just to encourage you uh, by way of reminder. So I want to remind you of some things that hopefully you know. Hopefully uh, you find yourself saying, yeah, I've heard that before. Um, but I want to just refresh your mind with some of the truth of what Jesus has done for you through the gospel. Okay, so I want to just talk with you about the gospel. And you may say, uh, Pastor, I'm, I'm a follower of Christ. I believe the gospel to become a Christian. And now isn't it time to sort of move on to something deeper? Well, listen, the gospel actually is is as important for you as a Christian. If you name the name of Christ this morning, if you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, the gospel is as important for you now as when you first believed. Amen? Y'all know how to say amen in Alaska? We say amen in Texas. Okay, so if you hear something you agree with, you can say amen, all right? So the gospel is just as important for you now if you are a follower of Christ as when you first believed. A a pastor in North Carolina puts it this way, that the gospel is not like a diving board off of which you jump into something deeper as a Christian. The gospel is more like the swimming pool into which you jump and into which you go deeper and deeper and never really hit the bottom. And so the gospel is as important for us now as it's ever been, and I just want to encourage you, I want to preach the gospel to you, uh, to your heart, and encourage you by way of reminder. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a British pastor years ago, he said that one of the reasons that people face discouragement today is because they listen to themselves rather than talk to themselves, uh, I resonate with that because there are a lot of voices in my head. I know I'm a little, a little off, a little crazy, but there are a lot of voices speaking in my head um, that swirl around up there and can cause doubt, can cause confusion, can cause discouragement. And uh, if I listen to those voices, if I listen to those voices of doubt or discouragement, then uh, I can experience uh, dark seasons as a Christian. So what I need to do is I need to do more talking to myself than listening to myself, if that makes sense. I need to, to preach the gospel to myself. And I would encourage you to do that as well, that when you're going through the valley in the Christian life, which happens, when you're going through dark seasons, to, to do less listening to yourself, more talking to yourself. Remind yourself of the truth of the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning from Romans chapter 5. And I want to speak with you just for a few moments on the results of our justification in Christ, the results of our justification in Christ. Romans chapter five, verse one begins with a big truth. It says, therefore, since we have been, let's say this phrase together, justified by faith. Now let's stop right there because that is a big truth that ought to encourage your heart. To be justified means to be made right with God. It assumes that at one point in time, you were not right with God, that your relationship with God was at odds, that your relationship with with God was fractured, that you didn't have a friendship with God. But now you have been made right with God. That's one of the big truth claims of the gospel, that those of us who were far off 
can be brought near through the gospel. Isn't that good news this morning? That, that phrase right there is very good news. It's actually a summary statement from what Paul has been arguing in the first four chapters of the book of Romans. So I want to zoom out and kind of do a 30,000 foot view of where Paul has been traveling in the book of Romans up to this point. Romans chapter 1 actually begins with a little bit of bad news because Romans chapter 1 says that God is a holy and righteous God who is going to pour out judgment on ungodliness and unrighteousness. And that's bad news for each and every one of us because apart from Christ, every single one of us is a rebel. We've all disobeyed God. We've all done things in our life that's displeasing to God in various ways. And the Bible says that God is gonna pour judgment out on us for our sin. He's gonna pour out his wrath on ungodliness. That's one of the most startling realities that you can read in print, that God will pour out wrath on sinners. And in Romans chapter one, Paul begins to list all the various ways that we sin. Romans chapter one is like a laundry list of ungodliness and unrighteousness and rebellion. Paul begins to list out, particularly in the Gentile world, all of the ways that the Gentiles rebel against God. And he says, God's gonna pour out his wrath on that. That's bad news, isn't it? And you say, Pastor, well, I'm a religious person. Uh, I go to church, uh, you know, I'm there every time the doors are, are open and I read my Bible and I pray, uh, therefore I don't have to worry about the wrath of God. Well, listen, just because you, you, you might have been born in the church, that doesn't make you a Christian in the same way that you might have been a born in a garage, it doesn't make you a car. You might have been born in a Taco Bell, it doesn't make you a burrito. Just because you were born in a church and raised in a church and go to church doesn't make you a Christian. And in fact, Paul makes that point in Romans chapter two because Romans one, he points out the ungodliness and sin sort of in the outside Gentile world. But then in Romans two, he points to religious people. And he says, hey, be careful you religious people when you judge others because oftentimes you do the very same things that, that you judge others for. And so he concludes in Romans chapter three, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter whether you're an insider or an outsider. It doesn't matter if you're religious or irreligious. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're a Baptist or a Catholic. Whoever you are, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 1 says God is gonna pour out his wrath on those of us who are sinners. So the question is, how do we, how do we escape the wrath of God? If we are rebels and we are sinners and we deserve the judgment of God for our sin, how can we be made right? Well, I think one of the natural ways of thinking about how to be made right with God would be to think, well, okay, if God's gonna judge me because of my rebellion, then maybe if I work really hard at being a good person, maybe God will avert his wrath. Maybe God won't turn his judgment towards me if I work really hard at being righteous, at being godly, at doing all the kinds of right things. You know, if I vote the right way and I'm a good neighbor and I do good works, then maybe I can be made right with God. Well, that's why you have Romans chapter four because Romans chapter four says you can't be made right with God on the basis of your moral effort. You can't be made right, justified, uh, on the basis of works. Instead, you have to be justified on the basis of faith in Christ. That's what Romans 4 is about. And Paul holds up Abraham as an example of somebody who is made right with God, not because of his moral effort or his moral performance, which is kind of a natural tendency of the human heart to think, I can earn God's favor through my moral performance. Paul says it's impossible. 
you can only be made right with God on the basis of Christ's performance for you on your behalf, and it's your faith in Christ and his work, not you and your work, that makes you right with God. And all God's people said, amen, Amen, right? That's the truth of the gospel. So that's where we come to Romans chapter five and verse one. Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, having been made right with God on the basis of our faith in Christ, rather than on the basis of our moral effort or our works, Now, what he's gonna do in the rest of these few verses is he's going to begin to talk about some results of our justification. When you have been made right with God on the basis of faith in Christ, what is now true of you? And Paul is going to talk about four things that you have as a believer in Christ. You might not have much in this world. In fact, you might have had a lot of loss in your life. There might have been things that have been taken from you and stripped away from you. But if you're a believer in Christ, there are four things that God has given you that no one and nothing can take from you. And this is what they are. Number one, you have peace with God. Number two, you have access to God. Number three, you have joy in hope. And number four, you have joy even in hardship. Okay, so those are the four things that Paul begins to explain in Romans 5, verses 1 through 8. So let's just walk through the text together. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, here's the first result of our justification. He says, we have, let's say this together, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's very easy to read verse one and say, oh, what a great benefit, what a great result of justification. I can have peace. And we often read that phrase as meaning that now I have sort of some inner peace because I've been justified. Actually, that's not the kind of peace that Paul is talking about. When we think about having peace with God, sometimes we sort of interpret that to mean that we have some sort of like inner peace, inner balance, inner calm, something like that. But actually, I don't think that that is what Paul is talking about at all. In fact, when you come to faith in Jesus, it it may not result in any kind of inner calm. In fact, it might do exactly the opposite because following Jesus is difficult. Amen? Not easy to follow Jesus. It might upend your life. It It might throw a wrench into your life, a wrench into your plans, a wrench into your future. You may not experience inner calm whatsoever. You might begin to experience great trouble as a result of following Jesus. So that's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying that you have sort of an inner calm because you know Jesus. Instead, what he is talking about is a, an objective reality where our status before God is transformed from someone who without Christ was an enemy of God, who now in Christ is a friend of God and even a member of God's family. You know, before you know Jesus, the Bible says that we are enemies of God. We don't like to think about ourselves that way. But that's actually the way that the Bible describes us. Ephesians chapter two says that we are children of wrath without Christ. Colossians chapter one says that we are alienated from God, that we are hostile to God, that we are are enemies of God. Without Christ, we shake our fist in God's face. But when you become justified by faith, when you become made right with God through the work of Jesus, Paul says an extraordinary miracle happens, a transformation happens where you, your status is changed from someone who was hostile, who was alienated, who was an enemy of God to someone who is now at peace with God. In other words, because of the work of Jesus, hostilities have now ceased 
and you go from shaking your fist in God's face as an enemy of God to being at peace with God. If you have two warring nations, they've been fighting one another, they're hostile, they're enemies engaged in battle. At a certain point, if those enemies make peace, they are going to sit down at a table and they're going to sign a treaty. And the treaty says, we're at peace now. The war is over, hostilities have ceased. Folks, the gospel is our peace treaty. The, the gospel is how warring enemies put down their weapons and are made into friends. And Paul says, when you come to be justified by faith, when you come to be made right with God, you put your weapons down. <laughs> You're no longer hostile towards God, fighting against God. Now you can be made at peace with God. Now you can become a friend of God. And in fact, what's more, you can be adopted as a member of God's family, as an adop adop adopted son or daughter of the king. Isn't that good news? Now, that claim, what I'm telling you right now, that you can have peace with God through Jesus, flies in the face of a couple of prevailing views out there in our world today. The first view would say, you know what? Uh, we're not enemies of God. We're automatically at peace with God. In other words, just by virtue of being human, uh, we're at peace with God. And so you'll hear a lot of people talk about, you know, God is in everything, he's in all of us, and, and just by virtue of being a human, that, you know, you're, you're God's child. Um, theologically, this would be the idea that God is only imminent, that he's, he's in us, he's with us, that you're automatically at peace with God just by virtue of being human. This is the view that essentially says uh, God is only mercy, that God would never judge anybody, that God has no enemies, that he's just at peace with everybody. The other predominant view out there in our culture is the exact opposite. That, that's the view that says peace with God is impossible, that, that God is only transcendent. That means he's far, he's distant, that you can't actually know him and be his friend. Some even fundamentalist forms of Christianity kind of uh, reinforce this idea that God is sort of like this angry old man in the sky who's just waiting to smite you all the time. This would be the view that God is only justice, that God is just a mean old judge and, and he doesn't want to be friends with anybody. Some of you have maybe felt that way, maybe because of things that you've experienced in your past, you're just wondering, could God ever love me? Could I ever be at peace with God? Well, the, the Bible says that God is not just mercy and he's not just justice, that God actually is full of both justice and mercy. That he is a judge, but he's also merciful. Now, now, a theological question for us is, how do we reconcile those two things? How can we reconcile the justice of God on the one hand and the mercy of God on the other hand? The answer is through the cross. The cross of Jesus is where both the justice of God and the mercy of God meet. Because here's what's happening on the cross of Jesus Christ. God the Father pours out his wrath for sinners on his son Jesus on the cross in our place. God, in other words, takes his wrath, which you and I deserve because of our sin, and on the cross, God turns his wrath in upon himself in the death of his son so that he fully pours out judgment for sin, but it's on the cross on his son Jesus who dies to take the punishment for our sin for us in our place so that God can be fully just in pouring out wrath for sin, but then he can extend mercy to sinners because the price was paid by someone else rather than by us. That's the heart of the gospel message, the idea of substitution, that God himself 
sends his son Jesus to die as a substitute for us in our place and he fully takes the brunt of God's wrath for us so that you and I don't have to pay that price. Isn't that good news this morning? The price has been paid for your sin? That someone has taken God's wrath for you on your behalf? Uh, Amy and I have four children. Uh, We've got three girls. We've got one boy. Our The ages are 15, 13, 10, and eight. So we're out of the diaper phase, which is wonderful. It was like getting a pay raise. Uh, It was just awesome. But our our, uh, third child is uh, a a daughter, Mackenzie is her name. She, uh, she's a redhead. And uh, when she was really young, she was like our scrawniest kid. She's just this tiny little skinny redhead. And we had this really big uh, lab rottweiler mix dog just massive beast and i remember one day uh, the dog was outside in the backyard and mckenzie had walked up to our back door and she opened up the door and left it open she's like two years old at the time she leaves the door open and our dog who we named zoe which in greek means life because she was full of life zoe turns around and i can see this in like slow motion you know the the dog it's like the dog from uh the sandlot Uh, the dog turns her head and sees the door is open to the house. I'm gonna run in at full speed and jump on things. So the dog begins to slowly turn and starts to run at full speed into the house. And I'm looking, I'm behind my daughter Mackenzie. I'm looking and I'm seeing like massive beast dog running at full speed and my little two-year-old redhead Mackenzie and it's like a train is coming and it's it's gonna not be good. And so... Without thinking, I just quickly scoop Mackenzie up into my arms, and I just grab her and turn like this, and that dog just, boom, hits me right in the back and flips over my body, and, but Mackenzie, she lived, okay, in case you were wondering. She survived. She lived, and so did I. That, in a sense, that is what's happening in the cross of Jesus. Jesus is taking the brunt of the wrath of God for us, and we are sheltered in Christ from the wrath of God. Like Noah and his family inside the ark that were rescued from the storm of God's judgment, you and I could be rescued from the storm of God's judgment through the work of Jesus through the cross. That's why Paul says, having been justified by faith, we have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's through the work of Jesus that we can be made at at peace with God. But there's a second benefit, a second result. Not only can we have peace with God, the Bible tells us we also have access to God. Look in the text right here in verse two. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now I want you just to circle or underline that word access. It's a fascinating word in the Greek New Testament. It actually has two different kinds of backgrounds to that word. It has a kingly background and it has a priestly background. The kingly background, that word access in the Greek New Testament is the word prosagage. In the ancient world, you had uh, kings, and uh, a king would have a, a, you know, a palace and a, and a throne room. And if you wanted to come into the throne room of the king, uh, the king would have basically like a doorkeeper who would stand at the entrance to the throne room, and you couldn't get into the throne room unless the, the doorkeeper would announce you, would introduce you and welcome you into the presence of the king. That doorkeeper, basically like an ancient bouncer, would stand there and you couldn't get in unless he introduced you and the king welcomed you in. That was a, the, the doorkeeper was a prosagage. Okay, that's the word that Paul uses right here. Thank you, brother. That is super helpful. That sun was like coming right in the eyeball. 
Um, that is the word that Paul uses right here. In fact, some of you, if you read the New American Standard Bible, it translates it this, that we have our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. What Paul is saying is when you've been made right with God through faith in Christ, there's a sense in which you have now been introduced into the presence of the king by your prosagage. Who's the introducer? I think it's Christ. I think Christ is the one who one day will, will announce you, who will introduce you, who will say, hey, this is Andrew, who apart from me was rebellious and sinful and broken, but he is now blood-bought, and he belongs to me, and I am introducing him into the presence of the king. That's what it means to have our introduction by faith. One day, no matter who you are or what you've done, if you've put your faith in Jesus, you will have an introduction into the king's presence. Amen? Here's a second way in which that word is understood. Not only does it have a kingly background, it also has a priestly background. And that's what Christian Standard Bible, which I'm reading from this morning, is trying to uh, reflect in this word access. We have access by faith. Uh, uh, in the Old Testament, I want to ask you to just dust your, uh, the cobwebs of your mind off and think about your Old Testament history for a minute. If you were a, a Jew in uh, the Old Testament period of time and you wanted to worship God, the way that you would do that is by going to Jerusalem to the temple and you'd bring offerings and sacrifices. And the thing about the temple is, we were talking about this last night, um, how many of you have ever seen those Russian dolls that have like there's the doll and then there's like a smaller doll inside of the doll? Okay, can y'all settle a question for me? What is the name of that doll? Okay, I couldn't hear any of that, y'all. It was just like one jumble. Okay, we heard nesting doll, and then, Philip, help me. Matryoshka. That sounds very legitimate. Um, so those dolls, right. Okay, so the temple in Jerusalem kind of was similar in that it was a series of rooms that started large, and the further into the temple that you got, the smaller the rooms got until there was an innermost room. So like the very outermost uh, room or court area was called the court of the Gentiles. And that's where if you were male or female, Jew or Gentile, you could come into that part of the temple complex. But then there was a wall that separated out the court of the Gentiles from the next court, which was called the court of Israel or the court of the Jews. And that's where if you were a Gentile, if you were not Jewish, you could not come into that inner room. You had to stay on the outside, literally the outside of a wall. Can you imagine if you constructed a wall around True North Church and you're like, hey, only Alaskans are allowed in here. You know, if you're a transplant from somewhere else, sorry, you can walk around the parking lot, but you can't come in the building. That was like the temple in Jerusalem. There was an inner room even from there um, that where, where if you were Jewish and male, you could come into that room. So sorry, ladies, you might be Jewish. You can kind of come into the lobby, but you can't come into like the inner sanctum, right? There's even an inner court from there that was called the court of the priests. And this is where you had to be Jewish, you had to be male, and you had to be from the, priest, uh, the, the tribe of Levi. You had to be a priest. There was an, even an inner room from there. It was the innermost room in the temple. It was called the Holy of Holies. And that's where you had to be male, you had to be Jewish, you had to be from the tribe of Levi, but only one person from the tribe of Levi could enter into this room. It was the high priest. And the high priest could only come into the most holy place on one day of the year, a day called the Day of Atonement. And if you'd like to read about that, you can read everybody's favorite devotional book, Leviticus. Um, Leviticus chapter 16, you can read about this. But one person on one day of the year could go into the most holy place. 
That was the level of access that you had to God's presence in the Old Testament period. So like worship songs where we sing, you know, come just as you are. That, there was no such thing as that in the Old Testament. You don't just come sort of casually into God's presence. You, you can only come into his presence if you're one person on one day of the year. Folks, all of that changed through the work of Jesus. You remember that when Jesus died on the cross, there's something that happened in the temple. Does anybody remember what happened in the temple as Jesus is dying? What happens? There's a veil in the temple that splits top to bottom. That veil is what, what separated the most holy place where one person could go one day of the year. It's what separated that room from everything else. And it was as if God was shouting that through the work of Jesus, access into God's presence is now opened up to anyone, everyone, anytime, anywhere. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile. If you know Jesus, you can directly access the presence of God. It doesn't matter if you are male or female. If you know Jesus, you can directly access the presence of God. It doesn't matter if it's Sunday morning or Monday afternoon. If you know Jesus, you can access the presence of God. It doesn't matter if you're in the church house or you're out on the mountain. If you know Jesus, you can directly access the presence of God. That's one of the results of our justification is that we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Isn't that good news this morning? Okay, can you handle two more? I'm out of time, almost. We have peace with God. We have access to God. Here's the third result of justification. Paul says, we have joy because of our hope. Look what he says in verse, uh, verse number two. We've also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Paul says that because you've been made right with God by faith in Jesus, one of the things that you now have is joy. And you have joy because of your hope in the glory of God. Now, theologians have taken that phrase uh, a couple of different ways. One is to say that you have joy because you have hope in the glory that God himself possesses. In other words, when you consider our glorious God, that gives you hope, and because of that hope, you have joy, you rejoice. Now, that is certainly true, isn't it, right? God is glorious, we have hope in our glorious God, that hope should produce joy in us. That is a true statement. You can find that all throughout scripture, that we, we rejoice because of our hope in our God who is glorious. But actually, the other way in which that phrase has been interpreted, which I think is also true, is that we rejoice because we have hope in the glory that comes from God. In other words, Paul is saying, right, I told you in Romans chapter 3, he says, all have sinned and fall, what, short of the glory of God. But now Romans chapter five says, because you've been made right with God, you now rejoice because you hope in the glory which will come from God. In other words, what Paul is saying is that when you know Jesus, one day you will actually be bestowed with glory from God. You will hope in the glory of God. God will actually share his glory with you. Now, hopefully some theological bells are ringing in your mind right now. You might be thinking, God shares his glory with no one. What are you talking about? We'll actually be bestowed with glory. But actually, that's a very biblical idea. If you read Psalm 8, for instance, uh, the psalmist says, you know, when I consider the heavens and the work of your hands, uh, the stars that you have placed into the sky, what is, what is mankind that you even take thought of him? 
And the natural answer to that question is, well, we're really small. We're not much. We're, we're nothing. But the psalmist says, you have made him a little lower than God and have crowned him with glory and honor. That's one of the great truths of the Bible, that when you know Jesus, you will actually participate in glory that comes from God. That, that you, you yourself will be glorious. That Jesus himself, right, we even talk about this in the, the terms of, of salvation. We talk about being justified, being sanctified, and being what? Glorified, right? Now, what, what all that means is be above and beyond my pay grade. Okay, I don't know what that looks like exactly. C.S. Lewis suggests that to receive glory from God, to, to, to be someone with whom God, or, or on whom God bestows glory, means something like, like this. We often talk about glory as being uh, famous, right? So if you are a star uh, wide receiver and uh, on the championship game of your senior year in high school, it's you know seconds left to go in the fourth quarter, your team is down, the, the quarterback throws a Hail Mary, you run for a 45-yard reception and touchdown, and your team wins the game because you had this glorious catch. And all of the, the stadium runs out of their seats onto the field, and they hoist you up on their shoulders, and they chant your name. You're, you're famous, right, because of this. C.S. Lewis says we often think about glory that way, like having fame with people or being recognized by people. Lewis says that to be bestowed with glory from God actually is the idea of fame, but not fame with people, it's fame with God. In other words, to be someone upon whom God bestows glory is to be someone whom God recognizes. God looks at you and says, I know you. I recognize you. You are known to me, and I approve you. I welcome you, I celebrate you, I love you. That's what it means to be bestowed with glory from God. Now wouldn't that give us joy, if that's true? That one day the God of the universe will look at you in eternity and say, listen, I don't see your mistakes, I don't see your sin, I see you in my son Christ. Which means I recognize you, I approve you, and I welcome you. That's glorious, isn't it? Paul says, you're justified by faith. You rejoice because of the hope of the glory of God. Before Christ, you're excluded from God's glory. In Christ, you hope in the glory that will come from God. But there's one final result of our justification, and that is not only that we have joy in hope. That makes sense, right? The, the idea that we would be famous with God, that God would recognize us and, and uh, notice us and approve of us, of course that would bring rejoicing. But the last thing that Paul says is harder to understand. He says, we have hope, uh, we, we, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but not only that, verse three, we also rejoice in our, what does it say there? Our afflictions. Some of you have a translation that says our sufferings. Uh, some of you have a translation that says we actually, we boast in our sufferings. That's weird, isn't it? Is that weird to anybody else, or is it just me? Like, sometimes I read verses in the Bible, and I'm like, that is strange. This is one of them. How do I boast in my suffering? I mean, if Paul says, we complain in our sufferings, then I would get that. Like, yeah, that's, that, that makes sense. Paul says, no, we rejoice 
in our afflictions. We have joy even in the midst of hardship. That's what Paul is saying. Even when life is not going our way, even when I'm not enjoying my best life now, I rejoice. Even when my life feels like it's crashing in on me and everything is going wrong and I'm suffering, even in that, I rejoice if I've been justified by faith. How can that be? Well, thank you for asking that question. Paul actually answers it. He tells us why we can rejoice in suffering. I want you just to see what he says. First of all, he says, because our suffering is actually producing something in us. The reason that you can rejoice when you go through hard times is because God uses those hard times to produce something in you. I want you to see what he says right here in verse three and four. He says, not only that, we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that afflictions, let's say this together, produces what? Endurance. Endurance Endurance produces what? Proven character. And proven character produces hope. You see, what Paul is saying is that God wants to get hope inside of you. God wants to create create you into the kind of person who is full of hope, who has hope no matter what comes their way. If you are prospering, you have hope. If you are experiencing devastation in your life, you still have hope. If things are going your way, you have hope. If things are not going your way, you have hope. If you are on a mountain, you have hope. If you're in a valley, you have hope. And Paul says the way that God intends to, to get hope in you is through the gift of suffering. We don't often think of suffering as a gift, do we? We think of it as a curse. (laughs) God, why? Paul says, actually, God is using your pain to produce hope in you. Here's how it works. When you go through suffering, that is going to be something that tempts you to give up. You go through something hard or painful, you're gonna wanna throw in the towel, you're gonna wanna give up. But Paul says God intends for your suffering to produce endurance in you. It it toughens you up to be resilient, to continue to go even when life is hard. And when you begin to endure through suffering, that begins to build in you a kind of proven character. The kind of proven character that results in what? Hope. The kind of hope that says even though I'm suffering, If I've got Jesus, I still have reason to hope. I still have reason to rejoice. If everything in my life has been taken from me and all I have left is Jesus, Jesus is enough. Now, folks, that is hope. When you can have your job taken away from you and yet you can still praise Jesus because you realize Jesus is enough, you've become a person of hope. If you can have your health taken away from you and and most people would be lost in that moment without hope, but you say, I may not have my health, I may have had devastating uh, news about my cancer, but I still have Jesus, which means I still have hope. If that has happened in you, Paul says you can rejoice. Because God has actually used your suffering to build hope inside of you. That you realize that no matter what life brings or what life takes away, whether I live or I die, right, Paul says it this way, to live is what? Christ. To die is gain. Think about that statement. Paul says, look, if I live and I suffer, right, he wrote that statement from prison. If I live and you torture me and I survive it and I'm still alive, guess what? My life is Christ. 
I, I still get to live for Christ. And if you happen to take my life, to die is gain. I get to go be with Jesus. I win either way. Folks, that's hope. And Jesus will use suffering in your life to build hope inside of you. But here's the last thing that he says here. He talks about the nature of our hope. He says, not only can you rejoice because your suffering is gonna produce hope in you, it's gonna show you that you have hope no matter what. If everything's taken away from you, you still have Jesus, you've got hope. But our hope as Christians is a hope that will not let us down. Our hope in Christ is a hope that will not disappoint us. Our hope in Christ is a hope that one day will be vindicated, right? We can have all kinds of things that we hope for in this life that will let us down. I can hope that it's sunny tomorrow and that might let me down or I can hope that it will rain tomorrow and that might disappoint me. But our hope in Christ will never let us down. Look at what Paul says here. He says, right, suffering produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, proven character produces hope. This hope, that we have will not disappoint us. Paul's saying you can be assured that your hope in Christ is more than mere wishful thinking. Your hope in Christ instead is confident expectation in the future based on the promises of God. You know that that's what Christian hope is? It is a confident expectation that God is going to come through on his promises and it is rooted in the bedrock of the promises of God, amen? Look at, look at how you can be so confident about your hope. Look at what Paul says. This hope will not disappoint us. How do we know that? Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Notice what Paul is doing here. Let, let me ask you a question. Is hope oriented to the future or to the past? Future, right? When we talk about hoping for something, we're, talk, we're looking through the windshield. We're looking at something in the future. Paul says our hope, our future hope will not let us down how do we know that? Because God's love has been poured out on us. Is that, has been poured out, is that future or is that past? Past. You see what Paul is doing? He's saying you can have confident expectation in God's good future for you. You can have hope that is future oriented and you can have confidence that your hope will not let you down based on what God has done in your life in the past. Paul is saying look in the, look in the rear view mirror Pay attention, take account of God's faithfulness to you in your past. Look at how God's love has been poured out in your life. Look at what God has done in your past. Look at how God has been faithful to his promises. He's never let you down. And therefore, based on what God's faithfulness to you has been in your past, you can look through the windshield and say, I have confident expectation that my hope will not let me down. God will not fail in any one of his promises because he's not failed yet, amen? Now, let me, let me land the plane right here. I wanna give you just a word of encouragement because some of you, you're hearing that phrase, God's love has been poured out on me. And you might doubt that. As a pastor, I talk to people all the time who doubt that God actually loves them. And if that's you, if, if there's something in your heart that says, I'm not really sure that God's love has been poured out on me. How would I know that God really loves me? I'm so glad that you ask that because Paul answers that for us. Look at the last three verses. Paul gives us as a basis for knowing that God's love has been poured out on us. Look at verses six, seven, and eight. For while we were still, what does it say there? Helpless, verse six. At the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. 
For, for rarely will someone die for a just or a good person, though for a good person someone might be willing to die. But God proves his love toward us in this, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice what Paul is doing. He's saying, measure the love of God for you by the cross. If you're here today and you wonder whether God really loves you, you say, I'm supposed to have this hope in Christ produced by suffering, a hope that is rooted in the fact that God's poured out his love. I, I struggle to believe that God has actually poured out his love on me. How do I know God loves me? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Measure God's love by the cross. And notice on the cross for whom Jesus is dying. Jesus is dying on the cross not for the perfect, pretty people. He's dying for the ungodly, the helpless, and sinners. And Paul's, Paul's pointing out how odd that is to sacrifice your life for someone who doesn't, doesn't deserve it, hasn't earned it, someone who's sinful. Paul says, look, some people might be willing to give up their life for a good person, but Jesus was willing to die for us while we were still sinners. So let me close with the story. Amy and I used to live in Dallas, and I had a 45-minute commute into Dallas each direction every single day. It was awful. But I used to listen to a lot of radio while I was driving back and forth, and I was listening to a, a talk show in the morning one day, and uh, there's the, the, in between the songs on the radio, this guy was doing a man-on-the-street interview with different people, and it was going out live all over the, the DFW Metroplex. And I turned the volume up at one particular point because I heard him have this interview with this guy, and they're just doing, you know, witty banter on the radio. And right towards the end of this exchange with this individual, this man on the street interview, the, the host says, uh, is there anything else I can do for you? And the guy said, uh, actually, yes. I've just found out that I need a kidney transplant. And if I don't have a donor then I'm going to die. And so if you happen to know anybody, you know, that would help. Well, this goes out live on the radio in Dallas. And I'm like turning the volume up like, wait, what? What did he just say? Well, let me fast forward a little bit. The rest of this story is that this man's need for a kidney goes out on the radio live in Dallas. Well, somebody calls into the radio station, and to make a very long story short, they go and find out that they are a match and they donate their kidney for this stark stranger and it saves his life. Isn't that amazing? Now, I've thought about that story quite a bit over the years. I thought, would I do that? Would I donate a kidney for a stark stranger, somebody I've never met, probably will never meet again? Let me just ask you, okay? Let's just take the temperature of the room. How many of you would be willing to donate a kidney to a stark stranger? Raise your hand. All right, now this is a thumbs down right there, a hard, hard pass right there. Okay, all right, how many of you would be willing to do it for a stark stranger? It's going to save their life. Right now, I'm not, a, I'm not a medical doctor, but I think you've got two kidneys, okay? So you've got one to spare. How many of you would be willing to donate one? Hold your hand up. Be proud about it. Hold it up. Four of five of you. Okay, the rest of you are heartless, okay? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, th for those of you who raised your hands, I'm going to just talk to you here for a minute. Let me ask you this. Would you donate that kidney to a stark stranger if you knew that they were going to take your kidney and go on to be a really bad criminal, like a murderer? Would you still donate the kidney? 
Anybody? One. Okay, everybody needs to get his name and number in case you ever need a kidney because he'll help you out no matter what. All right, so, you, so right, most of us maybe aren't willing to give it to a stranger. If you're willing to give it to a stranger, if the stranger's gonna go on and do bad things, you're not gonna donate a kidney to him, right? Okay, to the rest of you heartless people who did not raise your hand, right? The thumbs down guy right there, yeah. Okay, let me ask you this. Would you donate a kidney to a stark stranger if you knew that that stark stranger was gonna go on to invent a cure for cancer? Thumbs up. Okay, yeah, good. All right, how many of you would do that? If somebody's gonna take your kidney and do something good with it, right? They're gonna invent a cure for cancer. Raise your hand up if you would donate your kidney in that case. Still a lot of heartless people, okay? All right, let me talk to you. Just the heartless ones here now. Just pay attention for a second. What about a spouse? Anybody donate a kidney for a spouse? It's gonna save your spouse's life. You better raise your hand up. Wife's like, raise your hand. Okay, how about a child? Child, your, your son or daughter, it would save their life. How about a mom or dad? Brother or sister? Brother-in-law? Sister-in-law? Hands go down. Um, okay, let me just ask you this. Just think about it in your mind because you all just made a judgment of who you would sacrifice for and who you wouldn't sacrifice for. Most of us would not sacrifice for someone who's a bad person. I'm not gonna give them a kidney. They're gonna do something bad with it. Some of you are willing to sacrifice if it's a good person. Are they gonna go do something? Almost everyone is, unless you're really heartless, almost everyone is willing to sacrifice if it's someone we love, right? Like a, somebody, like a spouse. Do, do you notice the impact of what Paul is saying? He says some of us might be willing to die for a good person. Some of us might be willing to sacrifice in that way. But, verse eight, in contrast to the way that you and I think, we, we will sacrifice for somebody if they're gonna be good or if they can benefit us in some way or if they're close to us in some way. God gave his son for us while we were still what? Sinners. Ungodly, undeserving, ugly, rebellious. That's how much God loves you. Not when you deserved it, but when you didn't deserve it at all. That's who Jesus died for. The people who are undeserving and ugly and rebellious, and that is the measure of God's love. If you ever doubt that God loves you, look at the cross. The son of God willing to give his life for us while we were still sinners. That's what you have because of justification. Isn't it a gift? Amen? Let's bow together. Lord, we are thankful for the gospel. Lord, would you just refresh our hearts, remind us of how much you love us this morning. Help us to enjoy that and give thanks for that. Lord, if I, pray, I pray if there's anyone here today who does not yet know Jesus and has not yet been made right with God, that they would make today the day when they put their faith in Christ. And we pray this in his name, amen.